So let's look to our Lord together now in prayer. Fathers, we're coming again before you in this second now of the three services, so thankful for who you are, that you would send Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. We're struck in this passage with the incredible oppositional efforts among those that would try to thwart your purpose and your plan for all of history, globally, personally. We can see the tensions of the hour that are microscopic in terms of the tensions throughout all of time. And we under, need to understand the reasons behind all that occurs here. We need insight into your word. It gives us insight into our hearts. Now minister to all those at their point of need. Father, we want to sense your spirit among us. We need that sense of strength. We need that sense of perspective that only comes by looking at you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Pondering the vacancy sign over that empty tomb. Thinking about the evidence at hand as to who you are, what you've done. So thank you, Father, for the way in which you speak. Help us not to let this passage be time-bound. Equip us to make this passage timely. Give us insight into your truth, which is timeless. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. And shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. And we're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Political leader named Frederick the Great, years ago, asked his chaplain to give him one particular piece of evidence for the existence of God. The response was classic. The chaplain replied, The Jews... Your Majesty, the Jews. It's a good way to introduce this subject, isn't it? Because what you and I see here in Esther chapter 3 is something which is part of an ongoing matter throughout the course of time. In the earliest example of what are known as pogroms, pogroms, You'll want to do a search engine on this afternoon on pogroms. Pogroms are what have been described as intentional, organized, destructive efforts against the Jewish populations. The word was first used in the 1881 through 84 time period in Russia. And of course, your classic example would be Nazi Germany as well as the Stalinist regime in history, pogroms. What we see here now is the unfolding of a pogrom in front of us. There's this man named Haman. He's going to be positioned next to the king. We know him as Xerxes. The Hebrew for that name is Ahashwerash. And there is going to be, in microcosmic 
formed the beginning of a conflict that will have global ramifications that gets settled by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. What I want to do with you now is to explore this idea of pogroms and the anti-Semitism found behind them. We're going to draw out three significant aspects of this whole matter of anti-Semitism and see how it relates to not only global matters and historical matters, but also futuristic matters as well. First, second comings of Jesus Christ. We're going to allow this passage to function in many ways as a paradigm of all these thoughts. And the first of this comes out of this 1 through 6, and we're going to phrase it like this. That number one is God's plan throughout history involving the Jews unfolds. Note, first of all, with me, what we'll call the initial stirrings of anti-Semitism that's found here in these opening verses. It begins, once again, with this phrase, after these things. The writer seems to want you to keep leaning into his writings and pondering, okay, I've got to connect my dots. After what things, right? Well, he has just described the way in which a man by the name of Mordecai, a Jew, positioned by God in God's GPS strategy, has been used to thwart an assassination plot against the king. Known generally as Xerxes, Scripture uses the Hebrew name for him, Ahasuerus. So now we thought we'd probably be getting a little more on Mordecai and his relationship with, with the king, correct? Well, we have to think again. Because now, time has passed. And in verse 1, we're told, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. The Jewish reader at this point was anticipating would be promoting Mordecai. After all, didn't he thwart the assassination attempt? Previous verses, chapter 2. But lo and behold, you and I are told here that the king promotes Haman. What's interesting about that is the description for Haman. Haman the Agagite. Now, I know you and I probably have not bumped into any Agagites lately, have we? Well, here's the story for the Jewish reader. Back in Exodus chapter 17, the very first people group to have a full-fledged assault upon the Jewish population were the Amalekites. The primary leader of the Amalekites throughout the years in terms of memory of the Amalekites would be Agag. Agag. Now, God had promised and had desired for these people who had so attacked his chosen ones, the Israelites, to be put to death, capital punishment. But this didn't happen. And you can read about it furthermore, not only in Exodus chapter 17, but also in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where Saul, King Saul, the Jews, decided to spare the Amalekites. Agag is their leader. It was because of that that he would lose his crown to be replaced by David. Now, the Jewish reader at this point has got eyes wide open. Because the Jewish reader is saying to himself, 
this king has got our leading primary oppositional people, historically speaking, positioned right next to him to influence the policies of this region. The Persian Empire, which was just a little less in size of the United States of America today, and which encompassed even the land of Jerusalem. Now you've been reading with me. You can feel the tension in that royal court. Queen Esther's a Jew. Haman's an Agagite. I was reading in the New York Times of how the Palestinians occasionally are the nickname the Agagites. You feel the tensions here emerging. This is also very contemporary, you see. He's advanced. And we find that the king, Persian king, Persian people ethnically come from Russia. You see. Now he has advanced Haman and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. What's going on here? When you begin to ponder the significance of all this, you begin to ponder some of the tremendous statements that have been made by historians over the past as well as the present. Barbara Tuchman, for example, distinguished secular historian. She says, viewing this strange and singular history of Israel gaining status of nationhood in 1948 after 1900 years of exile was a unique historical event. Viewing this strange and singular history, one cannot escape the impression that it must contain some significance in the history of humankind. That in some way, whether one believes in divine purpose or inscrutable circumstance, the Jews have been singled out to carry the tale of human fate. Or as Hegel put it, the history of the Jew is a dark, troublesome enigma to me personally. I'm not able to understand it. It does not fit into any of our categories. It is a riddle. Or, as Ogden Nash put it, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Meanwhile, we're pondering the positioning here. There's Queen Esther. There's Haman. One's got one ear, the other's got the other ear of this king who is not Semitic, whose ethnicity is derived from what we now know as modern-day Russia, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. Now, the king's gate in Persia was the administrative office complex positioned next to the palace. 
These were the political administrators of the day. This is where Mordecai was able to thwart the plot, the assassination plot directed against the king. All the more reason for thinking, shouldn't Mordecai, not Haman, be positioned there? The writer wants you to feel the tension of the hour. What's going to happen? So now all these political administrators now are paying homage, not to Mordecai, but to Haman, who comes from a history of opposition to the Jewish population. And furthermore, we are told in verse 2 that the king had so commanded concerning him. And now something arrests your attention. Note the contrast with the word but. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, throughout the book of Esther, what you will see is this tremendous tension between authority and loyalty. Didn't Ahasuerus, Xerxes, didn't he have Queen Vashti banished and replaced by Esther because she was not loyal to his command. Likewise, now, we've got Haman here who's dealing with issues of authority. Will there be a sense of loyalty to his command? You feel the tension in the air between authority and loyalty that are found here in these verses. Politically, that continues to run throughout all of history. But there's verse 3. And then the king's servants who were at the king's gate were still talking about the administrative wing. There's a conversation going here. Somebody stands out and somebody stands alone, and it's Mordecai. Now they might be saying to themselves, isn't this interesting? Mordecai was not elevated to that position. Haman was. You can feel the buzz in the administrative quarters. Why do you transgress the king's command, he's asked. Well, you're up to verse 4. And when they spoke to him, and you feel this incessant dialogue day after day, he would not listen to them. Has he been rehearsing the history of Haman's people against the Israelite population? all of whom are under the umbrella of the Persian emperor, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, and now we're introduced to something, and it's not by accident, it's by appointment. For he had told them that he was a Jew. What we've got to bear in mind is that the basis for courage is conviction. And in conviction, there will be times where you need to stand up, you will need to stand out, and you will need to stand alone. This is Mordecai's moment. Be absolutely certain your convictions are based upon what's primary, not what's secondary. Upon biblical truth, not personal preferences. And we're told that when Haman saw, see that word, circle that word, that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Curious with the idea of an intensive look. 
I'm standing on the Isle of Mykonos, one of the Greek islands. And what's interesting to me is that there's this store I've walked into, taking a break from the tour. And the store contains all kinds of paraphernalia, but there's eyeball after eyeball after eyeball after eyeball been painted there for people to buy souvenirs. I want to carry on a conversation, you see, with the store owner. And so I ask her, what's the significance of the eyeball? And she starts speaking to me in Greek. Now, I know a little Greek. He's about five foot one. I try to carry on some Greek with her, and then I realize she speaks broken English, so everything's broken here now. And what I learn is that this is a Natesar. And a Natesar is carried around by many people of the Mediterranean to ward off anyone who has cast the evil eye against their particular person. And so you have this sense where you want to ward off anybody who's casting the evil eye, particularly when you're not even aware that they're doing this. And Mordecai is not aware at this point that Haman is doing this. But you see, when it comes to the eye of God, he not merely is watching you, he's watching over you. God's providential care that even no matter what you're experiencing and the challenges and the difficulties of life, you don't have a God who's distant and merely viewing you in spectatorship form and watching you. You've got a God who's engaged and watching over you, and as we've been saying, though invisible, he is definitely involved. All things work together for the good to them who love God and are called according to his purpose. Though not all things, we've said, feel good. Not all things are good. But all things work together for the good. He can turn loss into gain in ways in which you nor I can possibly understand for his glory. So while Haman, in verse 5, is casting the evil eye, you've got to bear in mind the Jewish readers pondering the fact that, but God has his watchful eye over this whole scenario and why? Not answered yet, but why? Have Haman and Esther position, been positioned on opposite sides of this king? When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. You see, people find significance in their status. And when their status is removed, their sense of significance is removed. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your significance is not found in what you have achieved. It is found in your relationship with what Jesus Christ has secured. And that form of significance cannot be removed. So in verse 6, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Though Mordecai was willing to stand alone, here is subtle contrast. Haman, on the other hand, is not willing to lay hands on Mordecai alone. You following the flow here? The tensions here? The contrast here? 
But now draw a line between the end of verse 4 and what comes next in verse 6. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. You've moved from singular in verse 4. We were told that Mordecai was a Jew to plural in verse 6. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. In other words, he's not going to allow this to remain in, in miniature form. This is expanding rapidly in his heart internally until it begins to affect things externally. Don't underestimate small beginnings. And so Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom, Ahash Werash. So I said one of the earliest pogroms was in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh against the baby boys. You can jump ahead into your Newer Testament and Herod trying to thwart the one who will become king of the Jews. But all of this preceded the first coming of Jesus Christ. You see, where Jesus is born in Bethlehem to die on Calvary, and when the evil one could not thwart through pogroms the first coming mission of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, well, try and try again. Therefore, he does the second round. And so, do you find it fascinating that, that pogroms, such as in Nazi Germany, ponder 1938, 1939, and so on, take place, and a few years later, statehood is granted to the Jews in 1948. How does all this fit together? Keep pondering that. It's gone from singular to plural, you know. And now everybody is being threatened who is Jewish in origins. And I thought about that when I spotted this from a 2011 news clip. German freighter owned by a French company and flying a Liberian flag was intercepted by Israeli commandos. Here's irony. The crew of the ship, Victoria, had no clue what they were carrying. Concealed cargo. Beneath the bags of cotton and lentils lay nearly 50 tons of Iranian weapons bound for Gaza. Iran is simply modern-day um, Persia. The secret Israel Defense Forces operation, the IDF, prevented Iran and its president at that time, Ahmadinejad, from supplying, in violation of the UN Security Council resolution pertaining to illicit trafficking, the terrorist group known as Hamas with weapons, it may have also prevented the murder of many Jewish people. There was celebration in Israel. Something's got to be thwarted here. Now you're pondering this contrast of positioning between Haman on one side of the king and Queen Esther on the other side of the king, but she hasn't come up yet in chapter 3, has she? That's, we'll, we'll get back to that next week. But what I want us to see here so far is that as God's plan throughout history involves involving the Jews unfold, Notice, first of all, the initial stirrings of anti-Semitism in verses 1 through 6. Think carefully about what all this means. How does this apply 
to all times and all settings. Now we're ready for the second aspect. It comes out of 7 through 11, that is God's plan throughout history involving the Jewish people unfolds. Note the organizational efforts of anti-Semitism, 7 through 11. You're now up to verse 7, and it says, in the first month. Don't let that escape you. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, it's not a car. The twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast her, P-U-R. Now, if you've ever spent time in a Jewish synagogue, what you will find is that one of the celebratory time periods is known as Purim. And we'll get to that in the coming weeks. It's the celebration, the way in which the forces of Haman were defeated and how God had positioned Queen Esther for such a time as this. The complete text of the book of Esther is read during that time. It's known as Purim. It comes from this very word here you're reading about in verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur. That is, they cast lots. And I smiled because the same Hebrew word is used in Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, it's easy to just breeze right past that verse, but in that political time period, in secularized nations in particular, lots were cast to determine whether or not to go to war. So now... What you see here is that a major decision is about to unfold. This is the month of Nisan, which was the very month the Jews celebrate Passover. No coincidences here. Make the connections here. They cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. They reach that point. Then Haman, notice his timing. Everything's about timing in the book of Esther. But don't forget, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son in Galatians chapter 4, Paul wrote. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerash, there is a certain people scattered abroad. dispersed among all the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. Here's what's interesting is what comes next. So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. The king's profit. Notice how he's using a financial word at this point. Why? Anybody that has studied history to some degree of that time period knows that in 490 B.C., Ahasuerus' father, 
had conducted a war, Battle of Marathon, lost badly against the Greeks. So ten years later, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, trying to get revenge, to regain honor for his father's name, enters into the Battle of Thermopylae, 480 B.C., and then the Bay of Salamis, only to be defeated again by the Greeks. He has depleted his treasury. His war efforts are such that he doesn't have much left to maintain his kingdom. Where to go? What to do? Haman's got a plan. Note the subtlety. It is not to the king's profit to, buzzword of the day, tolerate. Tolerate them. Now what's interesting is that the Hebrew word here in the Niffle carries with the idea to give them rest, which is the very same word which was used by God in Deuteronomy 12, verse 10, to describe his desire for his people to give them rest. Internally, eternally. If it please the king, verse 9, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Annihilated. Jump ahead to Nazi Germany. Go back now, what's here? And with an eye upon the king's treasury to maintain his political uh, grip upon this expansive kingdom, just somewhat smaller than the United States of America, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into their hands. Uh, Haman, we're going to get that kind of money. By pillaging the Jews. Which is exactly what happened during Nazi Germany. You might want to read up on Kristallnacht. It's known in history as the night of broken glass. The onslaught of the Holocaust was such that Nazis then attacked Jewish synagogues broke the glass it's out on the streets, broke into the businesses, and plundered the Jewish population to help finance the Nazi operation. This is Haman's mentality. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasury. Somebody's got to stand up to this. What can one do about this? King Christian X, Copenhagen, caught sight of something that made him suddenly stop. Flying over a public building was a Nazi swastika. Open violation of the agreement between Hitler and Denmark. But then when did Hitler stick to agreements? Take it down, demanded the monarch to a German officer standing guard before the building. Orders from Berlin, snapped the officer. The Nazi flag must be removed before 12 o'clock, otherwise I will send a soldier to do it, the king declared. Such a soldier will be shot, threatened the officer. 
I am that soldier, said King Christian. The swastika was taken down. Courage is based upon conviction. Isn't it interesting that while Herod attempted to take life as king, the one born of the Jews came to give life. But notice the initial stirrings that lead to the organizational efforts. This uh, Haman here is savvy. And so what you and I are told here, the king took his signet ring from his hand, don't do it, gave it to Haman the Agagite. The signet ring represented the authority of the, of the, of the kingdom, of the king. This is not delegating authority, this is abdicating authority. Feel the tension? And notice the authority-loyalty conflict unfolding here. He gave it to Haman, not to Mordecai. The Jews who be reading the story have been thinking, that should have been Mordecai. He protected, he was the one who preserved life of this king. Haman is there to take life of the very one who protected life, Mordecai and others. Haman's strategy. What does the king do in 11? The king said to Haman, the money is given to you. In other words, whatever resources are out there are yours. The people also, here is relativism, to do with them as it seems good to you. Catch your breath at this point. There's so much here. And now you go back to Frederick the Great's question. Is there one commanding evidence for the existence of God? The chaplain replied, The Jews, Your Majesty. The Jews. And so now you look very carefully at what's unfolding here, and it's moved from an initial stirring to an organizational effort. And, and we can see crystal knocks, so to speak, unfolding as well in these very verses. What's going to happen? What comes next? It leads us to this third aspect of all of this. That thirdly, as God's plan throughout history involving the Jews unfolds, well, note thirdly, the social unrest of anti-Semitism. The social unrest. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. Haman waited 11 months for that day to attack the Jews. Decree is sealed with a signet ring. The edict of death is sent out on the 13th day of the first month, the very eve of Passover. God is sovereign. 
He's not a spectator. He's not merely watching. He's connecting dots and watching over. Yeah, Haman's here, but so is Queen Esther. It's going to happen. But all of a sudden, things start speeding up. This edict is according to all that Haman commanded. Who's in control? Written to the king's satraps, to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the people, to every province in its own script, every people in its own language. Contrast that to the way in which on that cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, was in more than one language, spelled out. And then, with that empty tomb three days later, validating that claim. Think global evangelization. To counter this kind of mentality. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed with the king's signet ring, but Haman's got the ring. And so letters in 13 were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to kill, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, in 13th, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder, to plunder their goods. And you look at that and all of a sudden C.S. Lewis begins to whisper into your ear. It's winter in Narnia, said Mr. Tumnus, and has been for ever so long. Always winter, but never Christmas. With Haman, there will be no Christmas. No Christmas, no Good Friday. No Good Friday, no Easter Sunday. The whole salvation plan is there in the balances. Who's sovereign? Who has the ultimate signet ring? Well, the word's going out. People are having to process this communique. In 14, a copy of the document was issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. 1939, a Viennese Jew enters a travel agent's office and says, I want to buy a steamship ticket. To where, the clerk asks. Let me look at your globe, please, was the response. The Jew starts, starts examining the globe. And every time the Jew suggests a country, the clerk raises an objection. This, is one, this one requires a visa. This one is not admitting any more Jews. The waiting list to this one, 10 years. When finally the Jew looks up and says, pardon me, do you have another globe? Meanwhile, the historian Howard Sacha writes, there's simply no logic in Jewish history. If there were, we would have disappeared a hundred times by now. We surely never would have had a state of our own. But then your mind goes back to Genesis chapter 17, where not once, not twice, three times, four times, 
we are introduced to the idea of the everlasting, the covenantal promise given by God to Abram, renamed Abraham. And so the evil one is trying to make the eternal temporal. And he'll be frustrated. First coming, and ultimately second coming. So in 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. The decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, which I've mentioned before, modern-day city is Sush in Iran. It is where Daniel received vision in the times of the Babylonians. It would be where subsequently Nehemiah would be serving position next to the king of Persia. But in the immediate context, who's going to have the ear of the king? The queen or Haman? As God's plan throughout history involving the Jews unfolds, note the social unrest of anti-Semitism, which is to this very day. And at the end, notice, ponder the contrast. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. Meanwhile, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. It's winter. Will there be Christmas? A pogrom is unfolding. Who ultimately has the signet ring? And meanwhile, a chaplain responds to Frederick's request regarding evidence for the existence of God. And the chaplain replies, the Jews, your majesty, the Jews. And three days later, the one with the signet ring, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, born a Jew, who came to die for your sins and mine, to be continued. Let's stand together. We've skimmed over history here, but we can see how pogroms were set up to resist both first and second comings in your sovereign plan and purpose for all time and for all people. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The Jews were not to be a, a reservoir of grace, but a channel of grace not a reservoir of truth, but a channel of truth about you for us. That one came to die in our place to save us from our sins. So with skimming the surface of history, using the pogrom as the paradigm, help us to understand how you are sovereignly involved in all things and that all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to your purpose. For this, we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.